second to a close. And then we'll, Lord willing, resume uh, the book of Exodus, the second half of it, next uh, summer. Um, lots of good stuff yet to discover in this book. And um, for the rest of the summer in adult Sunday school, our intern, um, David Myron, uh, he's going to be presenting on the what's called the three forms of unity. Um, so we are in the Presbyterian Church and one um, strand of Reformed theology there that, that emerges out of England um, and the Westminster Standards is an English confession but there was lots of great stuff that God was doing in, on the continent particularly in Holland and in the Netherlands um, and so uh, Mr. Myron's going to share with us some of the great reformed confessions uh, from that other sphere um, in the remainder of the summer so I think I think you guys will really enjoy that and I think it'll be um, a wonderful wonderful time that we'll have with him but for today, let's just turn briefly to Exodus 17. I'm just going to read this very short passage and offer a few Christ-centered reflections on it, and then just uh, think about what we've learned this summer together in Exodus as a way of closing it out and hopefully encouraging you. And I just want to say, um, before I forget, I um, want to particularly thank Edmund Clowney for his insights that uh, contributed. Um, he's a Reformed biblical theologian who helped me understand a lot of what I'm sharing with you. So we're looking at Exodus 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. And just by way of background, remember what happened last time, how they passed through the Red Sea and the Egyptians were destroyed. Okay, so now they're on the other side, and they're passing through the wilderness, but there's no water for the people to drink. Verse 2, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, talk, uh, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of that place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Okay, normally I would want to unpack this with you in kind of discussion format because I really love the back and forth, and you, you all have been so awesome this summer um, in our discussions, but I'm just going to, for the sake of time, just share a few thoughts with you that I hope encourage you. Um, First off, isn't it incredible um, all that the people have seen, right? They've seen the plagues, and these are like massive acts of God. <laughs> uh, they've seen the Red Sea split. Like, there's no natural explanation for the Red Sea <laughs> standing on its side so they could walk through on dry land and then destroy the Egyptians. Um, they've seen the angel of the Lord standing between them and the Egyptian army, when they would have just been slaughtered by these, you know, amazing military nation, 
um, the angel of the Lord blocked the Egyptians. Remember that? And yet, they say, why did you bring us here to kill us? <laughs> right? And uh, a little background, this is not the only time this has happened. Um, they, ha- they grumbled before in chapter 14. We saw that um, where the, the Egyptian army was coming against them. They're like, we're all going to die. They grumbled um, at the end of chapter 15 directly after, we didn't read this, but um, after the Red Sea, uh, the waters were bitter. They couldn't drink, and so they grumbled there. They grumbled in chapter 16 about a lack of food, and that's when God introduces the manna for the first time, the manna that will now sustain them for 40 years until they enter the promised land. And now they grumble again in chapter 17. (laughs) Okay, so there's this real sense of like, okay, the Egyptians, they had hard hearts. They definitely were worthy of God's judgment. So is Israel, right? Why were they spared? Not because you were the most righteous of nations, Deuteronomy chapter 7, but because of God's mercy and his promises to the fathers. And so that's really being underscored for us here as they grumble yet again. And isn't it interesting? They grumble against Moses, but notice what Moses says, verse 2, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? Right? So on the one hand, there are quarrels with Moses. Moses, why did you lead us here to kill us? But when Moses said, well, actually, your problem is really with the Lord. Right? And that's who you're really testing here. And so we have the two words, quarrel and test, um, the word quarrel also has overtones of, like, lawsuit. Like, they are, they are about to execute Moses for mass murder of the people. Like, well, we're all going to die, but you're going to die first. Um, and those two names, or those two verbs, I should say, become the name. Now, uh, Masa and Meribah. Masa from the word for testing. And Meribah, um, meaning um, from the word reeve, meaning to contend. Um, that is the place which we have here. They are testing the Lord. And what's the particular test? Is the Lord with us? Do you see that? At verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? As if you needed more proof, right? That's what they're testing. They're saying the Lord isn't actually with us. He's going to leave us here to die. Interesting that there's a Meribah at the beginning of Israel's wandering. There's also a Meribah in Numbers 20. This is a little confusing. Another place called Meribah, which is the same exact name, and yet it's a different place at the end of the wilderness, wilderness wandering. What's that saying? It's saying at the beginning of the wilderness wandering, there's Meribah. There's contention. At the end of the wilderness wandering, there is contention. The entire wilderness wandering is marked by contention. The people against Yahweh. What does a people like this deserve? They deserve the covenant curses. They deserve death. They deserve the same things that happened to Egypt. And so we have the staff. And isn't this amazing? You know, all these little, like, uh, details in the text are there totally for a reason. Look at verse 5. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Now, we all know that staff is the same staff that he used to strike the Nile. And yet, there's that little relative clause there with which you you struck the Nile. Take it. What's it highlighting? It's saying, okay, the staff of cursing, the staff with which the plagues came upon Egypt. Well, now that staff, I want you to use it again. And yet, notice how he's to use it. 
He's to use it to strike the rock. And how is the rock described? It's the rock at Horeb. Horeb's another name for Sinai. Sinai is the place where God meets with Israel. It's a place where he already met with Moses, right? Uh, Exodus 3. He's to take the staff and strike the rock at Horeb. And who, what does he say? I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. God associating himself with the rock. I will stand there before you on the rock. In fact, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, gives the rock as one of the names of Yahweh. His name is the rock. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. What is Moses to do? Instead of using the staff to strike a plague on Israel, Moses takes the staff and strikes the rock, which represents Yahweh himself. And when the rock is struck, what happens? Life issues forth for the people of God, the wicked people of God. This is what we call grace. People talk about, oh, the God of the Old Testament, God of wrath, all this. Have you read the Old Testament? (laughs) Like, the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New. He is both a holy God who tolerates no sin, and he is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and quoting Exodus 34, 6 through 7, the way God himself identifies himself in the book of Exodus. He is the God of grace. And all of this is to show them the grace that he's about to give to them when he sends his son. John 19.34 reads this. After Jesus has been put on the cross, he has been nailed to the cross, and it says, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. And I think what John's trying to show to us is that you are now beholding the ultimate rock from whom water of life comes forth. John, uh, John 7, 37 had said earlier that when Jesus does his saving work, what's going to happen? There will come within you streams of life that will emerge forth to everlasting life. Jesus is the rock of Moses, who was struck with the curse that should have fallen on us. We should have been on the cross. We should have been the ones struck with the Roman spear. Instead, Jesus was struck for our sake. And I know that Jesus is the rock of Moses because I have 1 Corinthians 10 on my, on my team, which says this. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 2. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. He's talking about the wilderness wanderings, talking about Exodus 17. It says, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. So the rock of Moses is what we call a type. It's a shadow beforehand of what God would do in Jesus Christ. You want to know the meaning of 1 Corinthians, sorry, you want to know the meaning of Exodus 17? Look to Jesus. Jesus is the one, he is Yahweh, who is struck for his people so that him being struck leads to waters of life coming forth so that we might live. And just in case we missed that wilderness connection, 
there's all of the times where Jesus is in the wilderness and feeding the people with the bread, right? What's that remind us of? Well, Yahweh in the wilderness, feeding his people with bread, manna, right? He is Yahweh. He is the one who feeds a complaining people even though we don't deserve it. So if we were to get to the end of Exodus 17 and say, moral of the story, no grumbling, how is that a rather pale interpretation of Exodus 17? I'm asking you. What are we missing when we say, moral of the story, don't be a grumbler? <laughs> like, what are we missing? Yep. Okay, so I, I was a little um, uh, too concise in saying don't grumble. What if I were to really bring out, don't be ungrateful, um, bring out all the ingratitude and, and saying, don't do that. What would, what would still be missing? You're, I mean, you're right. Yeah, but what would still be missing? Yeah. If we miss Jesus Christ in our reading of the Old Testament, we miss the Old Testament, <laughs> right? If we turn it simply into a moral document of don't be like Israel, don't be bad, don't complain. Wait, <laughs> don't you see the whole way through God saying, yeah, Israel's messed up, you're messed up. But the definitive thing I want you to understand about the Old Testament is I I'm going to intervene, God says. I'm going to intervene with my grace. I'm going to take on myself the curse of the covenant so that you might live. And so I want you to understand that that is the meaning of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is a book about Jesus Christ. And to kind of close this out and um, close out our class together, I want to read to you this quote from Alec Motier, who's an Old Testament scholar, a Christian Old Testament scholar. And what I want you to think about as I'm reading this is the fact that every single thing I am about to say is true of Israel, and then it's also true of you, O Christian. Exodus is our story told in shadowy form. We are living the ultimate Exodus. Okay, so listen to this quote. Think about how it's true not just for Israel but for us. And this, if you get this, you will understand the incredible Christ-centered nature of the book of Exodus. We were in a foreign land, in bondage, under the sentence of death. But our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God, took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and he led us out. Now we are on our way to the promised land, we're not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us, and through blood sacrifice, we also have his presence in our midst. So he will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. Did you hear that? Every single thing is the story of Israel, and an Israelite could say that, right, um, on their way to the promised land. Everything I just said is also true of you who has the ultimate blood sacrifice, the ultimate lamb, the ultimate law, the ultimate promised land, 
that we're heading to, the ultimate deliverance from bondage through the power of Jesus Christ. That's what I've been trying to get across as we've been going through the book of Exodus, um, as we've looked through the first half of it. Hope, I hope that got through, um, the glory of Jesus in the book of Exodus, and I hope we'll have a chance to look more at it uh, next summer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for Jesus, the rock of Moses, the one who was struck and waters of life came forth. Lord, we're amazed at the number of and astonishing pictures in the Old Testament of you. And Lord, we sometimes are taken aback by how profoundly similar they are and ask ourselves, how could we have ever missed this? And yet, Lord, um, so often we have. And so we ask that as you taught your disciples on the road to Emmaus um, to see you and to see your glory in the Old Testament, we pray that we would read the Old Testament as Christian scripture, as a witness to Jesus Christ, crucified and raised, and that we would see his glory so that in seeing his glory and in seeing the new and better exodus that he has accomplished for us, we would then live in a manner that is um, consistent with that great identity as those rescued from bondage to sin. Lord, we don't want to grumble against you. We don't want to question your goodness. We don't want to question, are you with us or not? But Lord, we know the power to not grumble, the power not to question or to contend against you lies not in ourselves, but only in beholding the glorious grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. And so we pray, help us to really believe the gospel. Help us to understand the gospel deeply, including from the Old Testament, and help us to live as those who are redeemed from bondage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks, everybody.